Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I'm your host, Philip Van Dusen, and today I'm super excited because I am here with Christine Mao. Christine is the VP of Brand Strategy at Medline, which is a healthcare company. Previously, she served as a senior director of global design at Kimberly Clark for over 15 years, leading the global design thinking transformation for brands like Kleenex and Huggies and Kotex. AdAge has called her a woman to watch, and she's built a career leveraging the power of brands with organizations, agencies, and institutions all over the world. Her teams have won the design awards like the Diamond Penta Awards, Reggie's, Effie's, AIGA, ID, Print, and the Dyline Awards, among many others. And on a personal note, Christine and I attended the AIGA's Business Perspectives for Creative Leaders at Harvard University program over, I think, a decade ago. And that was like we, yesterday. Yeah, we've been friends and colleagues forever and since. So with that, I welcome Christine. Thank you so much, Philip. I am so excited to be here. I think when you started um, doing the the posting and the videos, I, I was one of the first people to like follow you. So I, I take great pride in that. Like I knew you when and it's exciting to see what you've done with this. I think it's so important and so valuable to people. Like, like if I had had this gift when I was starting out, the ability to like see and hear some of these things and know you're not the only one who's confused about this or has a question about that or doesn't really know what that looks like, like invaluable, especially to those like just starting their career. So oh, I'm excited that's so to be sweet. here. Thank you so much. And I did not pay Christine to say that. So I no. really do owe you at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so Christine, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and, um, you know, maybe drop a personal, personal note just to, you know, give people a sense of Christine. Okay. So I started my career um, really on my own in Wisconsin, like, you know, set up my own camp. And at this point I'm doing like a lot of like small branding and a lot of like print and pattern illustration work. And that's how I got connected to Kimberly Clark. I started doing a lot of just the the little animals that would go on the diapers or the flowers that go on the paper really? towels. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't even knew that. And then that led into packaging work, which led into branding work, which led into kind of trend forecasting and design. And then that led into the campaigns and that led into kind of the brand foundational tools and then the design thinking and innovation. And so like, I have just sort of built and built and followed like my curiosity for like, once I, I kind of would get really good at one thing, then I was like, I was ready for the next thing. And I was so appreciative that they allowed and still allow their, like their employees to do that and grow with them and kind of follow that. So, um, had a great time. I had an international assignment in looking over um, Europe, Middle East, uh, Africa, uh, with a location out in London, um, still for Kimberly Clark. And then when I came back, um, things have sort of changed in the organization, and they just weren't going to kind of do some of these things that I was really excited about anymore. And that's why I took kind of a a pause in my career. So it was like, okay, well, what, what do I do? Because I thought I worked for the best company. And, and I was proud to say I worked for that company. So I was looking for something similar in that 
I have these three things. I want to work. I want to have challenging and interesting work. I want to work for a company that I'm proud of, that I feel like reflects my values um, in a culture um, that is really curious and supportive and collaborative. And I found that at Medline in healthcare. So I did a bit of a pivot over from both a CPG and a design management, design branding focus to healthcare and at the same time pivoted over to strategy, mm. which has been a pretty big, it was a big transition for me. Yeah. And yet another large kind of pivot in your skill set, right? Yeah. And so explain a little bit about Medline. Before we hit record, you were telling me a little bit about who they are, what they used to be, and kind of what they're like now. How do you utilize yeah. strategy within Medline? Yeah, so Medline's not a household name, at least not yet. Um, it When I started, it was about a $9 billion business-to-business um, -business medical supply company, medical devices, supplies, everything you need to run your whether it's your hospital, your physician's office, your nursing care center. Um, and they would, um, it was a kind of a supply and distributor manufacturer um, advantage. Like we could get you everything you need and it'd be very reliable and it'd be um, really affordable for you. And, you know, as everything evolves and the landscape evolves, we started to think like, and Medline before I got there said like we're going to start to look at like how do we build our equity how do we get affinity for this brand so that we're not going to be always you know maybe looking at what is the cost because our customers we found out thought all of our us and our competitors were all like really good so they'll they would just say well so we buy on price right so right. how do we really stand out and differentiate ourselves and become more of that strategic partner. So that's about where I entered Medline of how do we go on that journey and go from selling onesies, twosies items to start thinking about well, what are the bit, what is a customer's biggest need and how can we bundle everything together? So maybe, you know, topic of today is like infection prevention. So maybe we should be looking at how do we pull all that together um, bring together our thought leadership with our clinicians. So we actually, I work with like nurses and doctors and bring those points of view in and publish that content and take that um, all the way through to really helping them with their most urgent uh, problems and, and things that they're needing today. So I find that really meaningful work. I found like greater purpose in that. Um, mm. I loved every minute of what I did before. Um, and, you know, don't regret any of that, but super excited to be where I am today and feel like, you know, there's real purpose to my role in healthcare. Yeah, and it seems like it sounds like you've just helped them zoom out from being completely product focused to being much more kind of theme and more, you know, meta focused around uh, human need and yeah. whatever category or vertical that is. So you, you know, actually, it's funny as you were explaining uh, your career at Kimberly Clark because we have a lot in common that way. When I basically came up through the fashion industry in very much the same way, I went into Old Navy as a senior designer and left as a, you know, VP in charge of like four divisions and stuff. But it was this amazing rocket ship ride of them throwing challenges and people and everything at me over a period of time. So I grew with the company and my ability yeah. to lead people and manage budgets and all that sort of stuff grew over time. And it sounds like you've had exactly the same thing. That's that's pretty, I, I don't hear it a lot 
that people really come in at you were a freelancer you were like outside of the company yeah. and then came into the company and worked your way up what was that like how did you how did you orchestrate that apart from yeah, being that, incredibly smart which is what i know you are <laughs> thank you um and yeah i don't know if everyone does enough of this what which is i started doing as i said the product aesthetics and they would give me like oh once in a while someone would be busy and i might work on the packaging but i made it known i want to do more of this and i can show you and demonstrate that i can do more of this and you know i started doing that before maybe i had the title you know sometimes i hear people say like oh well you know I, i'm not being compensated as much not my title it's like you're being given an opportunity um they're giving you a chance what they're saying is i think you can do it you just do one or two and the rest will come. And so I was always very, um, very precise about where I thought I could continue to add value. I would start to, in my volunteer, like I volunteered with like nonprofits, um, I would do work there, which was maybe strategy work, or it was maybe, you know, figuring something out or creating a marketing campaign. And so I could bring those skills in back in and say, hey, look at what I did. Mm. I wanted, can, can I can I come along on that integrated marketing campaign planning? Um, I think there's a really important reason why design should be in the room on that. And this is what we talked about a little bit before of how I would label myself as design, um, because truly I, I don't think I was always bringing design in the room. I was bringing design thinking and I was bringing strategy. Um, but I had labeled myself as des designer. And I think at one point that was a little limiting. And, and by that, I mean, when, when I left Kimberly Clark as a senior director of like global brand design. So now, now I'm looking for what's my next move. And, you know, in Chicago, I'm in Chicago. So there's a lot of food here. And that wasn't high on my list of things that I thought I wanted to do. And I had reached out to someone at Medline, you know, previously worked with and asked if I could um, just practice a presentation for like a conference on their team. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, come in. And so I went in and did that. And then they said, hey, we're writing a position description for senior director of brand strategy. Can you help us with that? And I thought, oh, sure. You know, you come from the agency side, you know, I, I've been in the big corporations, I can help with that. So I helped with that, provided feedback. About a month later, I got a call. I've been watching and you haven't applied yet to the job description you wrote <laughs> because it was as for a senior director of brand strategy mm. and I didn't see myself. I had so internalized that label, but he, these people had worked with me and they saw that I had these other skills as well. And so I was always a designer trying to get in and talk about strategy. And that was my own limiting belief, limiting label. Um, and seeing myself then through someone else's eyes to um, go, oh, I was actually doing strategy with a focus on design because I do feel that strategy has to be executed all the way through to the execution mm -hmm. or it just becomes less effective. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I made that transition, one, to healthcare, and then two, that giant pivot um, from being focused just solely on design to being focused on strategy. So you you were working and you know leading design thinking in Kimberly Clark. 
for the listeners who may not know what design thinking is, can you characterize what actually design thinking is and how you implement that in a big corporation like Kimberly Clark, what that means for a brand? It took years, like five or six years to really drive it through the first time in North America. And then um, now I'm going to do it in Europe. And I probably achieved that in about 18 months. And then um, EMEA and uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa achieved that in about nine months. And what I learned along the way was um, design thinking is really a collaborative way of looking at what is the real problem you're trying to solve. So don't jump just to the thing of um, if we want to sell more widgets, I want to sell more widgets. So how do I get people to buy more widgets? So it might be um, really unpacking the, the problem. It might not just be that people aren't aware, but maybe that's not relevant anymore, right? You, you do a whole discovery and ethnographic research, like you build empathy. You go like, if I want to sell um, facial tissue to someone, I'm going to go and walk behind that mom for a day and see how she uses it, how she buys it, how she interacts, see what the other things are where she could have been using it. Um, what are her substitutions currently when she doesn't have it, right? So I, I'm building real empathy for the, the situation and then saying, okay, I think I now know the problem is how might we do X? So it's always framing it. How might we like, you know, build, um, get, get this product into her life in this way? How can we help solve this problem? And then doing rapid iteration. So instead of spending a year building something, spending a lot of irony and getting something really finalized and perfect and then showing it to a consumer for their feedback, you show them a taped up sketch, you know, whatever you can with the duct tape and the straws and you go, hey, what if we did this? And they go, oh, it's too big to hold in my hand or like, or it's too small, right? Or I need, it's, so they, you not, now you go to balsa wood, right? And you whip something up and you're like, hey, how about this? And then they're like, oh yeah, that's so much better. But why is it so heavy? Oh, okay. And iterate again. So it's this idea of rapid prototyping and testing to learn, which is very different from testing to validate. So what we see a lot in corporate America is they will spend a lot of time internally with just us guys, you know, who may not be the end user um, deciding what we think is going to be perfect. Like I said, spending a year or two on it and then proudly showing it to the consumer to validate that we got it right, only to find out either that we didn't. And now you've spent a lot of, you've invested a lot of time and money you won't get back. Or you, you try to justify, oh, those, they didn't really know what they're talking about and you launch it anyway. And then you don't get your, you, you failed. Um, so just wanting to, and to bridge that so that you you go from learning fast prototyping and when you learn you're like oh thank you for that feedback we're going to adjust it and, and you're just doing that every month you know so at the end of the year you've already had 12 sessions you've learned 12 times by the time you get to the end you have a really good viable product that people are excited about and maybe even delighted by instead of like oh okay <laughs> Also, I, I guess I, I would you, yeah, maybe I would buy it. Yeah, I guess if you put cheese on it, maybe. I've also found that design thinking is really helpful internally because then so many people are included in that process that when you come yeah. out the other end with the prototype, it's not like it's the first time merchandising or production has seen it, 
right? So there's not right. like this gang on like, oh, it's too big, it's too heavy. Hey, it's made out of balsa wood. <laughs> you know, it's there's it's more of a team effort. So everyone has a thumbprint on it to a certain extent, which is harder because of you know everyone wants their thumbprint on it as you're going through that design thinking process. But it, yeah. but it tends to turn out a better, more feasible product in the long term, right? And design thinking doesn't have to be and often isn't led by design, the design team. Design thinking can be led by marketing. It can be led by insights. It can be led by the innovation team. It's really about each person bringing their expertise at different times. So at certain times as the design person, I might have lead of the ball and control. There's other times where the insights person, especially during the ethnography, might have more of the planning and the strategy and let me tell you what this means and this is how we're going to conduct this research and this will be better. Um, and then yes, you you have your R&D folks who are saying like, okay, there's a different ways we can make this because it can't be a $20 thing. Like this one time disposable thing can't be $20. So we have to figure out how are we gonna make it. So yes, it's very collaborative and it is a very cross-functional thing from day one. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. BYOL.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At BYOL.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit BYOL.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's BYOL.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. So you, we were talking about before we went live, you were talking about, you were speaking at an event and a woman approached you. It was like yeah. Fuse or How or something. And she asked you a question. Can you, can yeah. you talk about that? So, so at the end of my presentation, this lovely woman came up and she's like, I have a question. And she goes, can a designer be a strategist? And, and I was like, I was taken aback a little bit. I was like, well, you know, you can be anything you want to be. And I was like, well, why are you asking? And she's like, well, my boss told me that designers can't become strategists. So I was like, okay, well, let's talk about like, if you have the right boss at this point. Yeah. Um, but, but really, you know, design is a problem-solving endeavor. Um, so designing is kind of design thinking. It, it's not that exact discipline, but you can clearly see how design thinking is utilized by designers every day. And the whole idea of design thinking, which is the, the real discovery of what's going on and the investigation, and then distilling down to what's most important is a lot of what's in strategy. And for me, strategy is, it's a facilitation of decision-making. So I, when, when I go in with, with a new group, I don't know if that's the best, um, I don't know, like surgical procedure tray ever or why, why it's better. Um, but I'm there to facilitate that they understand the tools and that don't add um, 17 things as their positioning statement, right? Um, it's about just helping guide and distill to make the decision. So a designer can do that because a designer has to develop, right? Like 
17 different layouts and you don't always show your your client all of them you might just show them the the top three right you control the situation a little you're making decisions and then you're usually guiding them to a decision so it's really having understanding what needs to be done utilizing the tools viewing for me it's viewing myself as the facilitator mm. i'm not the expert on your business but I can help pull from you the right information and guide you to what is the most important information that's truly differentiated and then help you figure out how you can put the spin on that to make it ownable and, and go out and be competitive. And so designers, if this is where a point where they are in their career and something that they want to do, they can start demonstrating that in their work that they're doing that day. They can start asking questions about that brand. That's part of that discovery process and the briefing process. Um, when your when you're division, your, your client, whoever is trying to brief you, and, and this is something else we talked about a little bit, which was like, don't run to like, oh yeah, I got it. You want, you want a new label for that. Let me, let me run off and do it, right? There's, there's a little bit more to be done. Yeah. And I think that that's, that is the gate. I think the creative brief for me anyway, in my career going from corporate and then into agency life, that was the, that was the gateway drug for strategy for me. Yes. Because a lot of times you get a brief from a client, it's 15 pages long and it's full of all sorts of research and fluff and 15 divisions getting their thumbprint on it. And they can be very confusing. And very and, long. And very long. Briefs that are not brief. Right. And so when I was at an agency I used to work at, I developed a one-page creative brief. So we would take I the client it. brief and we would break it down into a very systematic structure on one page because that a designer can internalize. But it captured the market space, the competitive space, the communication hierarchy, who the customer avatar was, what was the need state that was being satisfied, all those sorts of things that are on a brief. And that was how I learned to start looking at design around solving a problem. And also, that's where I started to develop my vocab. This is the important part, my vocabulary around how to position and describe the work and how the work was solving the problem. And, exactly. And you were saying how you had really strong convictions around what good design is made up of, the equal parts that good design are made up of. Yeah. What, are, what are those parts to you? Yeah, so I have this Venn diagram. Um, so it starts with like the strategy, the insights, the discovery, those discussions, the design thinking to understand what the problem truly is, the brief. So I'll give you an example. I, I had one brief where it said, um, we're going to do this, this new product. It's going to be softer than all the other products so could you put some get some nice flowers and put it on this box and and i sat there with that brief for like a week and i was like well we already put flowers on all the other packages so i'd really like a softer flower like you know we already use like i was really stumped and i just kept drawing the square because the the product was in a square and i kept you know trying to figure out what i could put on there we had already trained consumers that if we put water on a box so this is like facial tissue. It wasn't wet inside. Put roses on the box. It wasn't scented inside. So how are flowers or anything going to say this is softer? And then I finally just drew, it needs to go in an oval. It needs to go in a different container. If you want someone to immediately at shelf, sit, look at it and realize this is going to justify this is like $3 versus $1. You, you couldn't just do it on graphics because people are just going to dismiss what's inside. So that brief kind of 
handcuffed me to this one solution. They had already decided what the solution, what the problem was. The problem was graphics and I needed to solve that. So that's where I'm like, the, the first of the Venn diagram is the strategy. What is the real problem to be solved? What liberties do we have on the brief? And then the second part is the bringing the stakeholders along for the ride. So like if I know I'm going to take somebody and, and, and go from like what they have today to truly solve their problem, I got to give them something dramatically different. They're going to get scared when I show them that dramatically different thing. And they're going to bring me right back to just a, a tiny little 2% tweak. Managing the stakeholder, you have to show like, okay, what's your bravery scale? And let me show you like a another company that went, you know, like, let me show you the Starbucks evolution. And like, you know, are you talking about from, you know, 1970 to 1980? Or are you ready to go from 1970 to 2001? Like, so let's set expectations. Um, you say you want it to look clean. So let's do some trend boards on what, what are the connotations and semiotics of clean. And so you're starting to expose them to the things that they're going to see on the design later. So when you just bring out this new shiny thing with green leaves, they'd already bought into the idea that green leaves were going to signal clean to their customer, right? So, so it's a third of it, a third of your time needs to be spent on that strategy, the briefing, a third of it, you're managing the stakeholder. And then a third of your time is spent crafting the most beautiful, elegant, meaningful, um, where everything that you've brought in there, you can point to and say, this signals this, this color means this, this font reinforces, it's more friendly, um, it's lowercase for this reason, right? You can unpack the design and tell them why it works, why it satisfies um, all of the things that you talked about in the trends and their appetite for change, why it solves the brief. But I don't think enough people in design, I don't think they spend as much time on those first two to ever get their great design solution approved. Because when you shortchange the first two, people pull back, they get really nervous. This is a really big thing. People are going to judge them on what design they approved and what goes out. Um, they think of all the risk. Risk starts to drive their decisions rather than reward and you end up with this really incremental safe design. Um, so to get those truly remarkable, game-changing, we're doing something completely new and different, um, you have to spend more time on these other things. I think that really addresses one of the comments that I hear from designers a lot, which is, I have to spend so much time educating my client, and they bristle yes. at that. And But by the same token, in their other hand, they're saying, I get so frustrated with my client, they won't choose the best design. And I'm like, hey, you got to realize those two things are related to each other. Like you got to do the education because that is what is going to channel them. And you you have to take responsibility of channeling them into the design that is most appropriate and the best design for them. So I think yeah. that's really, I love that. I love that triple Venn diagram yeah. idea and the idea of the bravery scale. I think that's brilliant. I'm going to totally use that. <laughs> <laughs> So everybody who has come up in you know a, a career and had a, an, an incredibly successful career like yours, sometimes from a distance, it's hard for people who are just starting off or people who are mid-career to really see or understand 
maybe where there were obstacles or stumbling points or difficult patches that that were in your career that wasn't Christine Mao's career going up and to the right, you know, consistently. What were some of those challenges that you faced in in your career? So I, I do think part of it is how other people would see you as, as design. Uh, would they ask for your opinion or bring you in? Um, sometimes I was in my own head and I had these really generous people, whether they're from coworkers or agencies, but I would do this to myself. I would sit in the back and I'd be like, oh, I, I don't I don't think so. And th that was my reaction. I'm like, oh, I don't think so. But I wasn't bold enough or brave enough to stand in front and say, I don't think the female consumer aged 30 to whatever is going to be excited about this as I'm watching, you know, seven men in their 50s decide <laughs> what we're going to do for the, you know, sometimes like 18-year-old woman. Um, and I would have the, the agency person next to me and they'd go, you need to say that out loud. So I needed a couple of... I needed nudges. I needed nudges to know that. And, and if I said it and they didn't agree with me, the, the floor wasn't going to open up. I wasn't going to fall through. I wasn't going to be dismissed. And so that was something that I had, had done to myself. And it, it held me back for a while. I was mm. very, very kind of conservative or shy or, or wanting to protect myself. If you talk, if you wanted to know about the color, I got all kinds of opinion. I was ready to stand, you know, move, move aside, stand back. But when it started to get to these other, which seemed more businessy or more important things, I would I would hold back. And so that is something that I think we need to do for each other. We need to support one another. When you see someone in the room and you know that they've thought it through and they've got something to say or something that you think should at least be discussed, it's on all of us to go, hey, it's your turn. Like, I, th I think you have something to say. And then it's also for all of us to... Um, realize you're not going to get fired because you said something in one meeting that wasn't brilliant. Um, so I think that was one of my hurdles of just um, building that self-confidence mm. um, to feel like I, I, I could raise concerns um, of what I was seeing in the room. So we, we uh, met at Harvard University. We were in a program called Business Perspectives for Creative Leaders that the AIGA put on. And I think they do it at Yale now, but yep. that was the first, I had spent 15 years in the fashion industry when I went to that conference. And I realized when I got there, I had never been in a room with 30 or 40 other creative leaders who kind of did what I did at my level, but in agencies and corporations. And it was like this massive epiphany because I was like suddenly around my peers and I realized how much I had missed in my career by not surrounding myself with peers like that. When you were there at Harvard, had, was that a, a, did you have a similar experience in terms of finding yourself in a, 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 surrounded by your peers? Or have you tried to do that through your career in order to get perspective on what you're doing and how you're going about where you're going? Yeah, similar to you, you know, because Kimberly Clark was located in Nina, Wisconsin, not New York. Right. So there, there's not a hotbed of, of creatives hanging out at the Starbucks because we didn't have a Starbucks yet. Um, <laughs> so, so when I got there out to the program, I was super intimidated by all of you. And I think you, I was assigned to one group. It was you and Stanley Hainsworth. Yeah. 
who had both as said at this point, you had both like either studied or had been in theater. And the assignment they gave us is we had to act something out. <laughs> and I was like, gosh. So, so yeah, that was just another example where when you're really nervous, you just have to like dig deep and, and, and move through it and see what happens. And you guys were very kind and I, I don't know what it was I had to act out or how I did, <laughs> but you were, you were very kind and generous and didn't make me feel, you know, like I was, you know, less than, um, but I learned so much from everybody there. And I do feel like when you're with the community, that the community does do that. It's like, oh, I might know how to do this thing, but you're good at that thing and, and you're willing to help me. Like, I can ask you, I, I know I reached out to Elon after and, and asked him for some advice on things um, and some other people that yeah I've stayed in touch with. And you built that network. Um, that network is so important because so, we do all get into situations where it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I know. And it, that was such a transformative experience. Like I've stayed in touch with you. I, I actually still do projects with Michelle Ronson, who I've had on this podcast before. And she now has gone from being an SVP at Wells Fargo to now being one of the premier experts in user research and was named like, you know, an influencer and digital influencer on LinkedIn recently. And, but just that one 10 day experience, we made connections that have lived for, you know, over a dozen yeah. years. I mean, it's been really yeah. amazing. Do you, um, how do you, have you ever been part of a mastermind or any kind of a peer group or do you just make those connections at conferences or how do you do that? Um, for me, it tends to be the conferences okay. um, where I'd meet people. Um, even during the COVID, I managed to hook up with a couple like groups where it was a smaller like 12 people meet once a month. So you could have those genuine discussions about this is what I'm afraid of. This is what I'm working on. Um, we, we had one last month and it was like, what are our fears? What kind of leader are we going to be coming out of COVID? How mm. did that change us? Um, and, and you could have with, with your peers, these discussions of, because some people are really frightened, some people are really excited, some people are going to do more of this, some people just want to get out. Um, but it was a safe place to have all of those discussions and not be judged, but talk to a peer, because your family can't always help you with those things or your friends that are in different businesses, right? So it's the peer group is really nice. Yeah, I had color marketing group was something I had been a, a member of, and they also, they, everyone comes together and you select the palettes for the year and you do a lot of trend forecasting. So you're meeting with the same group every year, year on year. So I built connections there. Um, the things like how infused, they're a bit bigger, um, but I, I know people can find, like I end up just finding people that I've met elsewhere. And then sometimes they'll bring in a new coworker or something. So you extend your, your, your team, your network. Yeah. But I loved you had posted something online recently about how to nurture that network and not be forgotten um, and how to leverage that network, which I thought was really important for people to be reminded of that, especially when we're doing, still a lot of people are working from home. I'm still obviously working from home, um, at least through September. And um, now with things changing, we'll see. Yeah, that was one of the things I said in that, I think it was a webinar or a video, was that if there was one thing that I wish I'd known, earlier in my career, it was that people that you work with, wherever you're working with people, 
they will eventually end up at another company. And so will you. And those will be your connections with these other companies. And I was like, when I, you know, I worked with people for a number of years in, in fashion, and then suddenly they would end up at another fashion company. They'd leave for a promotion or more money or whatever. And, and then when I went out and was in an, at an agency, I'm like, oh, wow, I know people at Levi's <laughs> and Walmart and, and Ralph Lauren. And, you know, it was just like suddenly I was like, oh, oh, this is how it works. Like I had no schooling in networking at all. It was a surprise for me too, yeah. Now, chances are many of you listening might have first come across me via my YouTube channel. Building my presence on YouTube has done more to build my personal brand than any other platform. So I want to share with you the one resource that was critical in growing my channel. It's a YouTube plugin called TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is a freemium browser extension that you use to manage and optimize your YouTube channel videos. It saves a massive amount of time doing the mundane tasks like adding cards and managing your video descriptions. But it also provides incredible value through its video analytics, showing you data about your competitors' videos that's absolutely invisible without it. It also helps with adding metadata to your videos so they show up better in search. If you want to take your YouTube work to the next level, you have to get TubeBuddy. You can support this podcast by signing up through our affiliate link. Just go to TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen. It's easy to remember. Just type in TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen to check it out. By adding TubeBuddy to your video workflow, I guarantee you your channel will grow much, much faster. Just go to TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen and sign up for TubeBuddy today. So I, I don't know if you were at Kimberly Clark when this, I talk about this one particular case study a lot and it's in CPG. So, okay, we're going back to CPG for a second, but I don't sure. know if you were at Kimberly Clark when they did this, but at one point, Kotex developed a line of black packaging, mm-hmm. which was, were you there when they did that? That was my project. Oh my God. We have to talk about this. So, <laughs> so having been in a CPG agency too, you talk about, you know, shelf presence and shelf sets a lot. When you go down an aisle, like say you're going down the the, the fabric uh, detergent aisle, it's dominated by blue and orange, right? Gain and maybe some green and then tide orange, right? Tide. They, they own that aisle. And then suddenly this little upstart of method comes in with these clear bottles that are shaped like 70s vases and they're in beautiful colors and it likes it almost looks like a home furnishing item not a detergent massively disruptive visually in that aisle when you walk down the aisle they're like what the hell is that the black packaging of kotex was the same thing it was like this sea of pastel colors and flowers and waves and you know all the stuff and then boom it's like this block of black in the feminine hygiene aisle Talk yeah. about that and and differentiation a little bit and, and that shelf pop idea. Like, how did that come about? So the bravery scale was off the charts. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and the reason is, is they they had previously done a packaging change and they, they did a, a packaging change without improving the product. When you change the product, people expect the, or the package, they expect a product improvement. And that wasn't delivered. Um, and it gave people a reason to change. Either they couldn't find their package that they had before, someone new would try it, and people were 
must have been generally disappointed because the share was dropping, 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 dropping. So much so that it was a point of go big or go home. Mm. Just trying a different shade of pink is not going to get outside of this situation. That this is this is serious. And so it was like, okay, what do you do? So again, let's go to what what's the real problem and let's start following people around. So let's let's pick a target. Um, when do people adopt this, the brand that they're gonna typically stick with for their life? And it's not when, when at the start, because mom is buying it for you, it's when you start buying your own. So mm -hmm. somewhere around 16 to 20, when you're, you're spending your own money, you, you, this is gonna be your product. So we started following her around and having this pink, white, sterile, hygienic thing looked like, I have to apologize that I'm menstruating. There's something wrong with me and there's, there's a medical device that can help fix me. And what they wanted was like, yeah, I menstruate, so what? Um, the thing that like would just blend into my purse was actually neon colors that comes in a little black package, like a little black dress. It accessorized it. This is part of my life. This is part of who I am. And when I go to the aisle, I can choose from a hundred that are the same or enter the little black box you buy Kotex. So it started out with having a very specific target. So up until then, uh, at least the brands I worked on, it was like, okay, so women from, you know, whatever, 12 to, to 50. 50, right. Yeah. And, you know, what do they have in common? Not a lot. Um, so this was like the target was kind of like very young. And we're not going to worry about the 50-year-old. And, and, you know, true to you hear the stories, like if you target and you do something really well for one group, the others will come. So I would have people stopping me at conferences going, I know you didn't design it for me. I know I'm not your target. I'm 45 years old. I buy that for myself. And it was successful also because it wasn't just the package. It was the lifestyle. It was the product inside was engineered different for, for your bodies when they're that age. The marketing was different. It didn't show women running down the beach on the white mm -mm. pony, um, but actually just, you know, asking her boyfriend to go to the store and pick some up. Like it, it was more real and honest and genuine. So it broke through all that kind of stigma that had previously been associated. Yeah. So it was just bold and owning it. That was great fun to work on that. But that was one where there was a bunch of men who were standing there trying to decide what was that 16 year old, the 20 year old going to want. And I was in the back going like, no. Did you wait, wait <laughs> now something that that's massive that is that massive must have gone to consumer testing. You must've been in focus groups. Were you part of any of those focus groups? They must've had them. Yeah. I, w I would sit behind, you know, at, at the time it was a lot glass. of, yeah, behind the glass type of research, but yeah. you, you know, there's a lot of decisions on what goes behind yes. or, you know, on that side of the glass, right? You have to narrow down from all of these to like three. Yeah. Right. So what three are going to go in there? And th there was a lot of debate. And actually the, the one that's the, the group had picked out had to be removed from research after the first group. Cause the moderator called and said, they're getting so upset that anyone would think that this was for them, that we needed to take it out. That's and then amazing. I felt a little bit validated. Yes, I bet. You're like, <laughs> woohoo. Like at the quiet behind the glass <laughs> like, yeah, chair. Yeah. The right. They're like, is that okay that we take that one out? I was like, yep, that's absolutely, you know, I'm not surprised. Keep going. Just take that one out. Keep going. Awesome. 
So how do you get how do you get inspired? How do you stay inspired? You you know we've both been around the block for a while, and what keeps your you fired up? Um, I think it so travel. I haven't done much of that, but it's mm. the travel, the new experiences, trying new things that I've never tried before, doing things with my kids. So by kids, I mean my my you know twenty. 23 year old 26 year old um so we'll go traveling hiking whatever going to the museums the gallery you know that i think that typical stuff that you hear and it's putting myself into situations that i haven't been in before um and trying new things and then you bring those experiences back and that enthusiasm and that that ability to look at something through a different lens or a different point of view like are we going to use the same target we've always used or maybe do we look at something else? Do we look at this as a hygienic product or do we look at this as a style, a fashion accessory product, right? How can mm. I elevate things? How can I change things? So I think if you in your personal life do a lot of that, trying different things and looking at things with different lenses, you're more adapt and comfortable encouraging others because people will try to keep pulling you back to what I call the vanilla wafer recipe, right? The vanilla wafer Nobody loves, but nobody hates. No one will stop you from doing it, but no one's really that excited about it. The I mean, maybe vanilla few, wafer but, is pretty low on the bravery scale, let's say. Right, right. So they're always going to try to bring you back to that. So like, how, yeah, how do you get them to the Oreo of, of your skip, cookie scale? Well, yeah. it's been great talking to Christine. And I always, usually, I tell my my um my guess that i'm going to hit them with a big heavy question at the very end but i forgot to tell you so this is this is a question i always ask all of my guests which is do you have a personal manifesto or a mantra that you try to live your life by i, I don't know that it's like formally like i can articulate it um we do have family rules so the family rules are like if you're in a dramatic country or you always order the chocolate dessert unless you're in a dramatic country um, you never hit a girl, even if she hits you first, like you always wear your seatbelt. Like we, we have all of these kind of practical things, but then there's also like, always do your best. And, and that's good enough. If your best today, what was, you know, a B, be proud of that and, and celebrate that because I'm proud of you that you tried and you were out of your comfort zone. Maybe you didn't ace at this time, but you'll get up and try again. And also, um, I found it's also important to know where you want to be in five years. Mm. And that will help guide all of those things uh, to tapping your, your manager or someone in your network of, hey, I want to I do this. So I want to learn more about that. I want to start preparing. I want to experience. Can I ride with you? Can I go with you? Like when I got to Medline, it's like I didn't understand how you sell to a hospital. So it's like, hey. Can I go along on a sales call? Can I go in the back of, of the of the operating and the sterile core and root around and see, you know, like how the products are used? Um, so it's always putting yourself into these new situations. But I don't know that it's a, it's a mantra, so to speak, that you are looking for. But no, I, that totally qualifies. <laughs> and so, I mean, you have lived such, you have, you know, had such an amazing career journey that I just hope our listeners will take that mantra and run with it because that is so true about having, you know, the five-year goal. It, it really drives all of the decisions that you need to make. Otherwise- Yeah, it won't you, just come to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I had an expat assignment in London is because I went to our CMO at the time 
and I said, I would like an expat assignment in London. And, and the response was, we don't have design there. And I was like, I know, that's why you need to send me and I will build that discipline. I will build in the design thinking and I will deliver the profitability that you've been looking for in that business. I will, I will work with that team and I will do that. And about 18 months later, I got a call. Hey, wow, would you think you would be by any wild sense of the imagination willing to move your family to, to London? And I was like, oh, funny you should ask, of course. <laughs> you plant those seeds of where you wanna go and you do all the work and the prep work to make sure that you're the best candidate for when that mm. door opens and you're ready to go there. Maybe that's the mantra, plant the seed. That's awesome advice. So if people want to connect with you, Christine, where can they do that? Okay, so I'm on LinkedIn. And um, and I think that's how you reached out to me on LinkedIn. And I respond. I, I do actually see if messages come in. I think that's a, the easiest way. And um, yeah, I would love to connect with people, especially if they're you know, thinking about like, what do I do next? I am worried about this. And um, we'll, we'll just have a chat. I love expanding my network too. Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today on the Brand Design Masters podcast. And I hope you will come back again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.